morning. Uh, I'm a, a, now not a teacher, I'm a mental health counselor in Spokane, and I'm not a pastor, uh, even though sometimes I would like to be, and not because our pastor is not um, effective. I love, um, in fact, I think the best teaching that I've ever sat under on a consistent basis is the teaching we get here when Tracy speaks or Matt speaks or when I speak, I mean when other people. Uh, but once in a while I get a chance to speak, and, and I do say when I get a chance to speak, um, one of the great things is I agree with almost everything I say. Um, I usually agree with what Matt says, but, but with, when I speak, this thing keeps coming down. Can this be tightened or anything? Um, so we're in the middle of a series on practicing simplicity. And we have been looking how the culture of materialism and self-centeredness has infected us. And perhaps how we could think and live differently. And the series could be summed up, if we get the um, scriptures on here, um, could be summed up, in my mind anyway, Matt shared many scriptures, but it could be summed up in these two scriptures. The first one, one of my favorites that I use in, in mental health counseling is this, especially for Christians. Do not be conformed any longer to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will know what God's will is. You'll be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, perfect, and pleasing will, it says um, later in the scripture. Uh, the other verse, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all of these things. And the things that were listed above that were things about food and clothing and what we're going to wear and how we're going to look. All these things will be added to you as well if you seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And this keeps coming down. I may be playing with this all day because I kind of want this closer for my old eyes if you can forgive me. Um, but today is Valentine's Day. How many knew that? Guys, raise your hand. <laughs> Good job, Ben. That was smart. Um, it's a day when, when the world kind of moves away from the rat race to, to celebrate love. And so uh, when, when I thought about this, I asked Matt, I said, you know, we're doing this series. He had, he had invited me to, to plug in somewhere in this series. And February 14th was, was open. And I thought, what a great time to somehow kind of tie it in, to work in this idea of, of love. And so, uh, and part of it is that I, it's, it's my great passion, believe it or not, is, is love and marriage. And, and my wife and I created a marriage class a few years ago that we teach, and I do a lot of marriage counseling and so forth, and so that's very helpful. Um, lest you think, Ben, or anybody else, that it's not important to remember Valentine's Day, get this, 53% of women in a survey said that if they did not get anything for Valentine's Day, the relationship was over. Good thing, though. The 47% of the women, I mean, the women in here are part of the 47% that would not end it the first time anyway, okay? So guys, you have, you have a little chance. You give, they'll give you one more chance. Uh, Valentine's Day is sometimes very difficult for guys. Women, I want you to, to, to think about that. It, it's not easy because do I come up you know, with something creative? Or do I make her breakfast? Or, or do, I, uh, do I get something that symbolizes our love to give to her? And, and you know what, I do the same thing every year. Um, and so one year, I, I came up with a great idea. I got a big dinner plate, and I had to leave before she woke up. So I left this, a dinner plate. And I got Cheerios. And I arranged the Cheerios into a heart. And in one move, and I left it there, in one move, I left something symbolic and something about our love and something creative that also made her breakfast, okay? 
So, so just if some of you guys want to use that, you can. Um, so in, uh, in this idea with, with Valentine's Day, um, we wanted to look at love through the uh, lens of simplicity and uh, simplicity and kingdom values. Now we've learned that, that uh, our values, our culture has infected our values, has corrupted our values about time, things, and success. But the question is, what's love got to do, got to do with this? That's what we're gonna address this morning. There's never been a time, perhaps, when there are more books about love, more books about marriage, more songs about love, movies about romance, dating apps that promise to find you love, right? Never. Yet there's perhaps never been a time when we are so bad at love. Around us, half of all marriages end in divorce. Perhaps more disturbing is the trend towards serial monogamy or hooking up as a primary script for young adults. Get this, in 2018, only 29% of 18 to 34 year olds were married, compared with 59% of that same age group that were married 40 years before when the music was good and I had long hair. That's a tremendous change. People are not getting married, and they're not even sometimes in relationships at all because they're so fearful and it's so, it's so daunting. I've talked to a number of young people in addition who say they cannot name one young couple, married couple, that they know, they personally know, that is happy. No wonder they're afraid. But then there's couples like Ben and Stephanie who got great premarital counseling, and they're not afraid at all, and they're loving it. Nod your heads, right? They're loving it. Is it possible that pursuing and practicing love the wrong way? Perhaps that's the problem. Is it possible that what we need for love to last is not more candles, more flowers, better-looking bodies, better-looking spouses, or epic romances, and certainly not more expensive weddings that's $30,000 a year average nowadays. Perhaps we need to simplify love. And fortunately, God has provided a blueprint for a lasting love that will provide deep satisfaction for the soul. So like we've done with our views about possessions, we're going to look at several cultural messages about love and contrast them with the radical yet beautiful biblical alternatives. That was supposed to be up there, but that's okay. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have provided a blueprint, not just for marriage, but for relationships in general. And we pray that you would open our eyes to the beauty and the power and the wonder of your simple truths, and you deliver us from the deceptions of this age. Amen. So we're going to talk about several cultural messages. The first message is what I'm calling the Cinderella myth. How many know the story? <laughs> yes, Cinderella. She knows the story. And basically the story, if you think about the basic message, is this, is that ultimate happiness and fulfillment is found through epic romance and sex, maybe not in Cinderella's story originally, when you find your soulmate. That's the answer. By the way, do we need love? The Bible says yes. 
Do we desire love? The Bible says yes. We were created in the image of God who is love, who is in an eternal relationship. So the cry of every person's heart is to be loved and to love. I, I sometimes tell my wife, I don't know which I, which I appreciate more, which I like more, being loved, being adored, or having somebody to love. How many of you both are good? Unfortunately, in our culture, um, we think that, there, that it comes down to this. It's so deeply embedded in our culture um, is this idea that what we, we've, we hear and, and, and learn in The Princess Bride is that true love, if we find true love, then we will live happily ever after. Some of you need to read Cinderella again. Our culture tells me that somewhere there is my soulmate that will rescue me from my lonely, sorry, and unfulfilling life and give me true happiness. If I could just be smart enough, successful enough, or good-looking enough, or find somebody good-looking enough, I will attract that prince or princess, and I will live. Now you're getting it. However, there are several problems with this soulmate narrative. And especially those of you who are married, I want you to listen in, and those who are not married too, listen in carefully to this. First of all, the myth tells me that I can only find happiness when I find my one and only. It's certainly not wise to marry a person, by the way, with character issues who is controlling, dishonest, narcissistic, or disrespectful. But many singles today spend a lifetime searching for that perfect soulmate. You've seen some nodded heads. Who is a model, artist, astronaut? Babe. But it also, this idea strangles relationships with unrealistic expectations and paralyzing fear that we might have made the wrong pick. A friend of mine, oh, oh, and if our expectations are that Mr. and Mrs. Wright will be our perfect soulmate, I'm guaranteed to be disappointed. A friend of mine remembers well-known Christian author and therapist Dan Allender telling a class that he believed at some point everyone will feel disillusioned with their spouse. Don't nod your head, spouses. <laughs> Just, you can think to yourself. At some point, you will find that they have different values or different ideas. She may have a need to regularly buy new pillows before the old ones even wear out. Throw pillows we're talking about. Or he may refuse to eat tomatoes and anything you cook because they make him gag. In some cases, your greatest dream may turn out to be her greatest nightmare. Just a few hypothetical examples, of course. <laughs> 10 years ago into our marriage, as we were overcommitted to the max, Diana pulled a fire alarm, metaphorically. She said two things. She said, I love you, but I am not happy in our marriage. It devastated me because we were in love. The myth says you're supposed to live happily ever after because love is so magical. So what now? I guess maybe I married the... Diana said it. <laughs> in contrast, the biblical view of marriage is free from this unrealistic baggage. So now we're going to talk about the kingdom way. The kingdom way is this. Number one, only God 
can satisfy. There's one great romance in the 66 books of the Bible. There's the story of God's great love for his people. The Bible teaches that nothing and no one person will be able to fulfill you. As mathematician and philosopher Blaise Pascal famously said, there is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every man which cannot be filled by any created thing but only God the Creator made known through Jesus. And Jesus said, I came to give life and to give it more abundantly, John 10.10. So the Bible tells us there is a way to find ultimate joy and fulfillment, but it is not through finding that special someone. It is through abiding in the one who came to give abundant life. Psychologist David Rico suggests that we should never expect, this, this, this stunned me last year when I read this, we should never expect to find any more than 25% of what we need for emotional, social support from any one person, especially our spouse. That stunned me. And I use it all the time in my marriage counseling. We teach in our marriage class this idea. So what, if that's true, that means that I need to get 75% somewhere else. And the Bible actually teaches that. He provides the body of Christ the, and, and God himself who can be that person when our spouse is not there for us or when their spouse can't give us what we need or the spouse doesn't understand us. We are not left empty. That's the good news of the Bible. The world is frustrated because that person isn't giving them what they need and you do need all of the, these support things. But God can, the body of Christ can, family can. And if we're deeply embedded with brothers and sisters in Christ and with our children and with our parents and we're giving and receiving love, then we can find that full, complete package. This means that a meaning and satisfying relationship can only be, or, or can only be found when we get that 75% from others. This frees my spouse up from the burden of being my everything my Cinderella, or my Prince Charming. This also supports the idea that singleness can be on equal footing with marriage. You can be single and have a fulfilled life. Will there be loneliness? Yes. But in, your, in marriage, is there frustration? Yes. Is there even loneliness sometimes in marriage? Bits of loneliness? Yes. Jesus was never married, yet he's our model. He never had a romance, and he's the one we follow. So did he have love? Yes, he was saturated with the love of God. And God also gave him 12 disciples to give all of his life to, to love completely. The second kingdom way is this. Love who God gives you. So Jesus did. He loved the 12 disciples because God had given him those 12 disciples. We, we say we love everybody. God so loved the world, but, but intensely we need a few people that God has called us to. How many people could you have a successful marriage with? If the one and only is a myth, how many could you have a successful marriage with? Don't answer, Diana, please. Yes. <laughs> that is biblical advice, yes. One at a time. <laughs> I, I once looked at Diana, and in, in, in I, I, I'm a verbal person, and I want to come up with terms of endearment because they just bubble out of me because... God's put love for me, for, for her in my heart. And so, so at one point, I turned to her 
And I did a calculation, very simple. I'm good at math. And I said, Diana, do you realize there are nearly 4 billion women in the world? And of those 4 billion women, I chose you. And she shook her head. She says, you didn't have that many choices, honey. <laughs> but could have I married somebody else and had a good marriage? And I believe the answer is yes. Could have she married someone else? Probably even more people she could have had a good marriage because of who she is. Okay? There's one, but sometimes it's a wrong marriage one, or a bad idea, bad relationship. And the whole earth shakes saying, no. She was dating somebody and on May 18, 1980. Uh, they're at a canoe ride at Coeur d'Alene Lake. And it was a wrong relationship. And Mount St. Helens blew. And that relationship was over. This is a true story. <laughs> but on the other hand, can God lead you? Yes. Just because there could be several, many people that perhaps you could have a good marriage with, but God can also lead you. I was in, I'd met Diana. We were, we were camp, um, worked at a camp. She was a cook. I was a counselor. I'd go in every day to talk to her about how good her food was and eat some, some extras. And, and, I, uh, and I, I found this, in, she was an incredible person. I was, had great respect for her, kind of, sort of maybe interested in dating her. I don't know. It's in that place where I don't know. If, uh, after the summer was over, I had like a few days before camp, before I went back to school, and I, one day, one late afternoon, I was in my house, parents' house, and I was debating, do I, do I ask her out? And there was this old girlfriend who wasn't interested romantically at that point, but I wanted to just keep a good friendship with. I thought, maybe I'll do something with her, and I don't know, but I kind of like her, but I don't know if I like, you know, if I want to actually call her up and ask her, and I don't know. Does anybody ever remember being in that, like, I don't know what to do? In the valley of indecision, I don't know. And I did this crazy Christian thing that we're all supposed to do, but we often don't do. And I just literally said, God, I give up. And I went and got, <laughs> got on my knees even. And I said, God, I just give this burden up. I don't know. You know, I just give this whole thing up to you. Show me what to do or just, you know. And the phone rang. And this is back when there was a phone that hung on the wall. And I went, it was just so the timing was God. Just you, I give this to you, you do what you want, and and I went and answered the phone, it was her, Diana, not the other girl, <laughs> and she was, she was on the phone, and she says, hey, would you be interested in coming to dinner tonight, my family? <laughs> yes, these single guys are like, yes, I want that. Can God answer yes? Yes. And we went and had a, we not only had beautiful dinner with her family, I loved her family, and we went to a movie and we argued most of the night. <laughs> it wasn't a very good date. But that was the beginning. And the next summer, the Lord spoke to me very, very clearly before we even actually started having a relationship. She literally said, she's going to be the mother of your children. So God can call somebody to you. And, I'm, and ever since then, I've never looked back. He can lead you. I had somebody recently, um, well, I, I want to say this too. Um, so God could call us to call you together, but I believe our relationship is beautiful. 
I like to say it's one of the great romances of our time. But I've been saying that well before it was one of the great romances of our time. By faith, by faith, I want to make it. I want to make it one of the great romances of our time. And it's by God's grace of what he can do, not because she's a perfect person or because I'm so amazing, because what God can do. I had a young client in my office recently share this, of advice that his grandpa gave to him about relationships. And the grandpa said something like this, Sonny, marry the one you love and then love the one you marry. Simple, beautiful, powerful, something the world doesn't understand. Find that one. Listen to God. Is that who God's called you to? And then marry them and then and then love them. In cultures where both arranged marriages and choice marriages are both acceptable and, very, and common, guess which marriages are more stable? Arranged marriages. Arranged marriages, it's crazy. I think it's because the expectation is that you have to learn to love that person. You do your job. Your expectations aren't that they're going to fulfill every need. In his um, provocative book that I have here, Singles, this is powerful. It's a little disturbing almost. Um, in this book, Fuller professor, uh, seminary professor, Cutter Cathway, uh, challenges us to look at the relative lack of romances in the Bible, or at least great romances in the Bible. There really aren't very many, which is, which is fascinating. In the first romance story, God gives Adam one choice, take it or leave it, okay? And then, of course, there's a famous that almost everybody quotes, oh, but what about the Proverbs 31 woman? Now, the Proverbs 31 women has caused many Christian women to feel inadequate, right, women? However, we have no indication that Sit in the Gates' husband got her by selecting her from one of 25 beautiful contestants on the Bible Bachelorette show. In fact, all the tension is on her noble character. It even says, this wasn't her personality or her looks, it even says, charm is deceptive, beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord is worthy of praise. That was the impressive thing about her. The Bible paints a very high view of marriage, of course. It's a beautiful creation of blessing from the Lord, but the emphasis seems to be more on how one does marriage and who one marries. That's the power. In our wedding, our pastor asked us not if we had found true love or found our soulmate. He asked us if we believed that God had called us together. That simple. Yes, we were very much in love, but we shared vows written towards our covenant call with the faith that God would make it good. Diana finished her vows by quoting Philippians, that he who began a good work in us will perfect it. That was our promise that we were banking on. We had respect for each other. We had love for each other, but our confidence in the future of our marriage rested in God's miraculous ability to make us one. Cultural message number two. This may not surprise you. It's all 
about me. Love's all about me. Love and marriage is about making me happy. This is, you could call this relational consumerism. Relationships should give me what I want. Tim and, Kathy Keller, uh, Tim and Kathy Keller in their powerful book I have here, The Meaning of Marriage, best book on marriage I believe that has been written, that I've read anyway, calls this mindset of marriage the me marriage. It's likely that every groom and bride gets married with the expectation that their spouse is going to make them happy. Fortunately, some of that happens. Indeed, there's no one on this planet, including all four billion women, who have made me as happy, who's given me more comfort, more deep friendship and support than my wife, Diana. But the me marriage expects and demands that my spouse is there to make me happy. And if I find that my spouse is not giving me what I expect, then as a consumer, I need to take her back to where I got her for a full refund. <laughs> or at least trade for a new model. Has Matt used that on you? <laughs> oh, okay, okay, <laughs> okay. The consumer view is that we, we see in the ever-growing trend of couples living together. By living together, I could try out the model before I drive it. However, this is not trying marriage at all. Because marriage is about living under the security of a sacred promise. And, and, I, and I teach this a lot, but I've never thought about this analogy I kind of like until the other day. Living together is like renting a house. You're living in the house, but it's not my responsibility if something goes wrong. I just call the landlord to fix it, or I move out. That's a consumer view of relationships. But God's got a better plan. The kingdom way. We can get that up. The kingdom way is called a covenant. The kingdom way. This biblical view of marriage is very different. It's called covenant marriage. Covenant marriage is modeled after the example of Christ and the church. It's based on agape love, unconditional love that is unshakable, unmovable, undeterred, un and other-centered. Now, <clears throat> the problem with the covenant idea is that we do not have a good model, I don't think, in our culture for what that's like. We, we really don't. We don't buy a house that way. We don't buy, buy a car that way. So many things. We don't experience covenant. Yes, marriage, we talk about what is it like. And, and a few years ago, I came up with an idea that to me really rings true for what covenant is supposed to be about. And the concept is adoption. Because in adoption, and sometimes you have never even seen that child you have chosen to, ado to adopt. Talked to a, to a guy a few days ago who's planning on adopting and said that adoption in a lot of open adoptions, it costs $50,000. You spend $50,000 to adopt somebody, in some cases you've never even met. In some cases, they're a baby that was, that was, uh, that was born to uh, a drug-addicted um, mother. Or maybe there's some uh, problem. Or maybe they're from a different part of the world. But here's the idea. You choose to make them you choose to love them into your family. And it's a lifetime commitment. We had the opportunity a few years ago, I've told this story before, so I'll make this short, but we had the opportunity, God called us to take a 16-year-old girl in who we barely knew. 
We certainly didn't know everything about her, what it was going to be like. And she had been through so many different foster homes and, and, and problems in her home that we knew this. We knew we could not tell her, we could not bring her in for the two years that the state had us for, for, the, um, for that period before she turned 18. And even have her as a trial basis. One family had her for six months and then things didn't work out and they put her stuff on the doorstep and called her social worker and said, she, we can't have her come, back, come in. It was over. So there's no way we could make that kind of commitment. And so instead, we made a covenant commitment. We told her at the very beginning, if you, if you want to come and live with us and be a part of our family, you're a part of our family for good. As long as you want it. As a covenant commitment. And a strange thing happened. Not only did it take a long time for it to finally break through for her to get the idea that this was love for good, but it also changed us by investing and giving and feeding and loving and forgiving. Over time, by doing that, just like with your own natural children, by doing that, you find yourself adoring that person. So they become in your heart, they become your love person that you deeply love and adore. That's the power of covenant love. The covenant marriage, as it says here, is, not, uh, is a sacred commitment before God to devote all you have to make someone else beautiful. Tim Keller profoundly explains this in, in this book. Romance, sex, laughter, and plain fun are byproducts of this process of sanctification, refinement, glorification. But what keeps the marriage going is your commitment to your spouse's holiness. You're committed to your spouse's holiness. You're committed to his or her beauty. You're committed to his greatness and perfection. You're committed to her honesty and passion for the things of God. That's your job as a spouse. Any lesser goal than that is just playing at being married. Married Spouses here. Your highest call, besides serving the Lord, but your highest natural call on this earth is to beautify your spouse, is to honor and cheer on. And yes, correct at times because you want the best, you want to see the best in your spouse. You want to love them into who they can be. You love who they are, but you're really excited about who they can be. That's the power, that's the beauty of covenant marriage. Keller continues, the Bible tells spouses not only to imitate the quality and manner of Christ's love, but also the goal of it. Jesus died not because we were lovely, but to make us lovely. That's your call as a spouse. Fortunately, the commitment to your spouse's holiness also leads to unparalleled joy. When um, when I was in college, I went to a wedding, and the pastor of the church I was at, he um, spoke to the couple as they were standing there before him, and I've had a chance to do a number of weddings, and when I've presided over the wedding, I've given the same line. He tells the groom, he says, take a look right now at your bride. Look how beautiful she is. And then he tells them, what she looks like 10, 20, 30 years from now is going to be up to you. Now, my wife doesn't know this, but 
I brought a picture of my beautiful bride, 23-year-old beautiful bride, and the people were in awe, not so much of how beautiful she was, but why she married that dork <laughs> next to him. It was God's call, miraculous call. <laughs> so, so we were in love. She was beautiful. But the idea is, is that what she looks like is going to make a difference what she's going to look like in the future. The other day, I woke up next to a 61-year-old woman. I didn't marry a 61-year-old woman, but I woke up to a 61-year-old woman. I don't know how that happened. But here's the good news. She's more beautiful now because I've done such a good job. <laughs> and God, God threw me, but God threw his sovereignty and everything as I've cheered her on. But seriously, seriously, and, and, and I, I'm not worried about saying this at all because I don't think anybody would object to this, that I have a beautiful wife, physically beautiful, attractive, but her character, her, pers her personhood, the collective of her beauty is way beyond her at 23 in her physical prime. In a covenant marriage, I make a sacred uh, lifetime investment to one house. This is where I'm going to stay. This is where I'm going to raise my kids. This is where I'm going to grow old. My spouse may not be perfect. They may need a lot of work. Like in her case, I need a lot, she, I need a lot of work. Um, but part of the beauty, that's part of the beauty of it. You've ever gotten an old house. Part of the beauty on it is working on it. I'm fully committed to make this person amazing. In a Christ-centered marriage also, my spouse is fully committed to me and to making me amazing. There are things about her that may never change, but that's okay because this house becomes my home. Even the quirky things about it may become what I adore the most. Even when she keeps buying throw pillows. Got one more message for you. Cultural message. This is going to be real short. Cultural message and, and the biblical idea. Cultural message number three is called transactional love. If you give something to me, I'll give you something back. Relationships are about cost-benefit analysis and fairness. The question is, what am I getting out of this? That's the culture's view of love. This may seem perfectly logical. This may work well in the business world. It will not create intimacy. Inevitably, it will appear that you're given a little bit more than she is or doing more than your spouse. It will create resentment, frustration, and conflict. But the kingdom way is this, servant love. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. And Jesus says this right after he had done what? Right after he had washed every disciple's feet, foot. Scrubbing the calluses, the fungus, whatever. Now this, lest you think this is a normal thing, this was so demeaning or degrading 
It was reserved for slaves only. That's why Peter said, no, Lord, not, don't do that to me. I won't let you, allow you, and, and, and Jesus rebuked him. In addition, think about this. Jesus performed this act to Judas, who was about to betray him. Because agape love loves even those when they're not being lovely. That's the love of God. That's the power. This radical kingdom love even includes those who are hard to love. This love is way beyond the reasonable transactional love that two people would naturally give to one another. This is not fair at all. This is way out of balance. But this, this kind of love that can take a relationship to a level that's literally out of this world. You want that kind of love? And you need to live that kind of love. In a Christ-centered marriage, husband spice, spice, spice. <laughs> husband and spice and everything nice. <laughs> husband and wife will unfairly lay down their lives, unfairly lay down their lives for each other in humble service. But here's what's cool. Each act of service raises the bar for how far the love can go. As a result, service inspires service. Giving grows appreciation. Sacrifice fosters devotion. Preferring the other challenges deeper commitment. And the magic grows. The product of this practice, year after year, produces an intimacy that is untouchable, that the world just dreams about. The world doesn't even understand. This is the love, the kind of love the kingdom of God can produce. Diana and I have not followed this all the time. There's been a, a great need for smoothing our rough edges and repentance of selfish patterns. But now we are 37 years into this great adventure of walking through life as brother and sister, lovers, parents, grandparents, best friends, and fellow soldiers in the faith. We've experienced an interdependency, a oneness, an intimacy that we could not have imagined that day we got married. We are seeing some of the fruit that by faith, when we did get married, by faith and by the word of God, we believed could happen. And she declared, Diana in her vows, declared to me at the very end of her vows this. We have, have these vows in our bedroom to remind us of what the goal is, to remind us what we believed. She finished the vows with this. I am confident of this very thing, Kelly, that he who began a good work at us will perfect it until the day of Jesus. With Jesus as our Lord and firm foundation, our marriage will not fail. You, I, and our God will stand triumphant. <laughs> 